Good morning. Good to see you this morning. Happy Mother's Day to the ladies there at home, and we are delighted that we're able to talk about that in the morning service. What we're going to do here at the 930 session is we're going to do a Bible study, and it's going to be in the Gospel of John, chapter 8. And then in the 1030 session, we're going to take some time, do some tributes to moms. Thank you to the many of you who sent in pictures and comments about moms in your family. We were able to put together a collage, and hopefully that'll all gel together, and we'll show that to you in the morning service, along with a children's lesson that Pastor Tony will do, and then we'll have a study that we'll do a brief one that'll be uh, talking about as a tribute to our moms. Well, we want to get started in John chapter 8 in just a moment, but let me remind you that over the last couple weeks we've had some technical difficulties. We have tried and researched on this end, and where the conclusion is we don't think it's on site. We think it's somewhere in between us and where it gets to YouTube, but uh, we're still trying a few things this morning to uh, take care of of those things. It's ironic that it's happened now the last two weeks right at the same time. And so we're going to try to uh, deal with that. But if there is a time this morning that we go offline, we are able to readdress that and get ourselves up and running, usually within a couple minutes. Don't tune us out. Hang in there. And you might have to hit refresh on your own computer and just reestablish your link as well. But uh, hopefully we've been praying that it doesn't occur today and we're able to get through the entire service and we're hoping and praying it was just a fluke or we've got things corrected. But on that good note, let's get into a Bible study this morning. Hey, over the last few weeks, I've had the opportunity to uh, do a little bit more yard work. I've done more yard work in the last three weeks than I've ever done in my entire life. And uh, so it's been unusual to be at home in the evenings uh, throughout the week. And so one of the things I've been doing is working on my yard, and I noticed that I was having some problems with squirrels and a chipmunk that was getting under an area of my house where there is some wiring. So I did the research, thinking i got to catch these critters, and I don't want to, you know, I want to do it in a humane way. And so I thought that what I wanted to do is get my hands on some type of a trap. So I did a lot of different research and found one. I didn't want to go too big, lest I end up like Pastor Binkley did a few years ago. Got a big trap, put it in his yard, ended up catching a, an albino skunk. I, and we have them in our region. Uh, Pastor Newton had said that he had seen some going through our yard here last year. And so uh, I didn't want to get the skunk, so I got this size of a trap. Just perfect and it worked wonderful to catch that chipmunk and also a bothersome squirrel, just the right size. In John chapter 8, Jesus is teaching in the temple. And while he's teaching in the temple, he has some of his opponents, some of his enemies, they want to trap him and they design a trap that's just the right size, they think, that they could corner Jesus. Let's set up the scene of John chapter 8 before we read it. The story is talking about what happens in the fall, and if we put it in a calendar setting, it is the fall before Jesus' death. So he's been ministering for about three years, and we're into about October. He will end up dying March, April, somewhere in there, the following six months. And so when Jesus is uh, there at this Feast of the Tabernacles, he does what many of the teachers would do. As we mentioned in another study that will be aired here in a few minutes, this afternoon anyway, uh, at the temple, whenever they gathered in large numbers, the teachers would get on steps, get under porticos, and they would start Bible lessons. They would start classes, and they would do it to whoever was there. Well, Jesus has been a popular teacher. There are many people there for the Feast of the Tabernacles, and so being popular, he's going to have an audience wherever he goes. So during the feast, there at the temple proper, he is going to be teaching in that court of the women or some of those other courts, court of the Gentiles, where people will engage him. The teachers 
who are the ruling class at this moment, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. It's been brewing and it's been going where in the past it says that they want to get rid of Jesus. They have determined that well over a year and a half or, uh, prior to this scene. And even in this setting, when they have the discussion with Jesus in chapter 7 all the way through the end of chapter 8, by the time they're done with this, setting this trap and his response to them, it says that they want to stone him. So there's great animosity towards Jesus and their jealousy and they're angry at him. So what they do is they try to set a trap in the middle of his teachings. In fact, he's been teaching on this one day, chapter 7. And then chapter 8, it says he had left, gone to the Mount of Olives, and he had stayed there overnight, and he comes back in the morning, chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. He shows up in the temple in the morning, and as he is teaching there in the temple, sometime during the day, they spring their trap. Let's read it, and then let's, let's discuss it. We're going to jump down into the text where it says, verse 2, early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they set her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. What do you say? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up, stood up, and said, He that is without sin among you, let him first be the first to cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down, wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the oldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are thine accusers? Has no man condemned thee? And she said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Hmm, wonderful text. Filled with a lot of different lessons. Some that are lessons that are being taught in churches or in Bible studies that aren't true. And I want to discuss those. But most of all, I want to discuss the true lessons. Let's, let's make some observations. Okay, Number one. Jesus was not against God's word. He was not against God's law. Now, that's why they set this up. That's why they came. They wanted to see if Jesus would condemn this woman. And if he didn't, they'd say, see, see, you're not for the word of God. You're going against what Moses told us to do when somebody's taken into adultery. And the leaders have been for the last few months accusing Jesus and his followers time and time again that they don't follow the word of God. Oh, you do miracles on the Sabbath. Oh, your men are walking around there and they're picking the, the uh, grain from the, from the plants. Oh, your, your, your men aren't washing the way they're supposed to watch, wash themselves. So repeatedly they accused Jesus of this idea that he was anti-God's word. But Jesus repeatedly said, I am not come to destroy the law, I've come to fulfill it. He quoted from it, even in this section. If you read the previous couple chapters, there are several times where he says, Thus said Moses and the prophets. 
Thus said Moses and the prophets. And so Jesus wasn't against the word of God. He wasn't against the law. But that's what they're trying to accuse him of. That's what they want to trap him by saying it. And so what they're doing is they're going back to Deuteronomy. According to the book of Deuteronomy, you can look it up in your own time, Deuteronomy 22, it said that if an adulteress were caught, that she was to be taken before the elders, and then they were supposed to determine guilt or innocence, and if guilty, she was to be stoned. And so Jesus does not go against the law. In fact, he supports the law when they said, what about this woman? What about this woman? Well, he makes the comment, he says that he that was without sin, let him cast the first stone. In other words, Jesus is saying, follow the law. Follow the law. You are welcome to follow the law. I support the law. I am not against the law. If she is guilty of this crime and you have followed the procedures properly, then, yes, she, should, she could be stoned, as God's word said. There is another observation I want to make, that Jesus was not saying that it is wrong to ever judge people or to punish people. That's where many people who even today, they'll grab that phrase, he that is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And their conclusion is, and erroneously, their conclusion and application is that no, none of us should ever challenge, discipline, punish another person unless we are sinless. Oh, well, let, let, me, let me talk about that for a moment or two, Okay. Jesus is not saying you cannot judge. He is not saying you cannot punish sin. He is not saying government cannot punish sin just because we are guilty people. And I understand this. And just to give you a little bit of background, there are times where there are phrases in the Bible that at first glance you say, oh, wow, that's a pretty strong, broad statement. But to get the real intent, to get the real understanding in that context, you have to understand the context thoroughly. You have to include all the rest of scriptures. So in this setting, he that is without sin, let him cast the first stone. What was he getting at? Was he saying you never punish somebody if you are guilty of doing something wrong yourself? Well, if that's the case, okay, then what about some of these other areas of practical daily living? Here, let me see if I can set it up. The Bible encourages us, you and me, it encourages that time to judge, to correct others. There are multiple passages that talk about this. Passages that tell parents, for instance. Parents, even though you may be guilty of doing some wrong yourself, it is still your responsibility to correct your children. Can you imagine the anarchy that would take place in the home if you were to say, oh, if I have ever been guilty of doing something wrong, I cannot correct my children. Well, then our children would never be disciplined because none of us is perfect. And yet the Word of God tells us that if we withhold discipline from a child, that we really don't love them. It tells us that we must correct them. We must challenge them. We may, may even have to do corporal punishment of some sort so that we will save their soul from going into a life where it will eventually 
really end them up in hell because they have no authority in their life, no respect for the Lord, no response of recognizing that they are a sinner and they need to repent. So multiple times the Word of God gives us the idea that there needs to be some type of correction done by parents, even though parents are guilty and guilty of some of the same things their kids, they, they did when they were kids, and so you need to correct them. If we were to say, that we should never, ever correct somebody if we're guilty of sin, then how do you deal with passages that tell us as a church body, if some individual within the body is doing wrong, we're supposed to go and confront them? If, for in this case, he even gets very strong with this, there's a man in 1 Corinthians in that church who is living in in an incestuous relationship with his stepmother, he is involved with somebody who's not his wife in a physical way. It says, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Pretty strong words. I wrote unto you not to keep company or fellowship with fornicators, not to keep company with those who are fornicators, jud, covetous, idolaters, railers, drunkards, extortioners. Don't even eat with those individuals. So he is commanding the church body to be able, other believers to make a judgment and then to take some type of response to that wrongdoing. In fact, he even added to that, he says, Brethren, mark them that cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have heard and avoid them. So in the context of the full scriptures, should we judge? Absolutely. Do we need to take corrective measures? Yes, absolutely. In fact, Jesus taught that we are supposed to be careful and judge the preacher-teacher. We're supposed to be examining those who come in. And if we find out that they are teaching something that is wrong, he says, hey, beware of those false prophets which come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You'll know them by their fruits, so you have to make a judgment. You have to look and say, okay, if there be some that trouble you and pervert the gospel, though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto them, if they come preaching that, let them be anathema. You just have nothing to do with them. He said in Titus, he said, he that is a heretic not teaching the truth, after the first and second admonition, you reject him. You don't listen to them. You turn them off. You, you don't have them in the pulpit. You don't let them in your house, he said in the epistle of John. And so there needs to be some judgment. We need to be discerning. And if we see some wrong being done, we need to challenge that. Not only do we need to judge, but the Bible says our government needs to judge. In fact, they need to judge and punish those who would violate the law. We read in Romans 13, talking about government leaders. They bear not the sword in vain, for he, the government official, is a minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that does evil. Aren't you glad that there is such a thing that God's approved? That government is to stop criminals. They're supposed to, to uh, uh, intervene, to protect individuals. In fact, Peter talks about, here's the role of the government. That we are, the, whether it be the king, a supreme, or governors, we're to submit uh, as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. And so Jesus Christ in this text is not saying the way, what some people are saying, that you never ever judge another person and if you are guilty of something and having done wrong, you or government or other individuals are never to challenge or to judge that individual. That is not what he's saying. 
He is not saying parents don't correct. Not saying churches shouldn't challenge and confront. Not saying government cannot exercise uh, government rule. He's not doing that at all. What Jesus is talking about in this text, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. He's talking about hypocritical judgment. The same thing he talked about in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, judge not lest you be be judged. And then he went on to say that if you have a splinter in your eye and you're looking for logs in others, you're wrong. That's what he's talking about here. Same type of thing. You men are making hypocritical judgment. Let me show you what I mean by that. These men were absolutely, just totally in the in wrong the way they were approaching it. According to Deuteronomy 22, both the man and the woman who were caught in adultery were to be brought before the civil authorities and they were to be punished. They made it very clear in this text. The woman is caught in the act. There was somebody with her. There was a man involved. How come he's not being brought? Was he part of the trap? Did the Pharisees and Sadducees set up somebody so that they promised that man that if they, he could get involved with some woman, they would take her, but he would get away? Was he somebody that they knew and they liked, and therefore they were punishing this woman, but not the man who was a friend? We don't know who the man was or what happened to him. But we do know that the religious leaders were hypocritical in their response and in this trap by bringing the woman and not the man. We also know this. They were hypocritical in the fact that they were all of a sudden bringing this person to Jesus. The Bible clearly said in all the writings and the explanations of the law and the system that we talked about, even when we talked about the trials of Jesus a few weeks ago, they were to go to the Sanhedrin. They were to go to the local officials. And they were to have this case presented, and then there was to be examination that would be done to see if she's guilty. These guys weren't doing this. They weren't following the law as per the law that they claimed Jesus was breaking. In fact, Jesus made it clear already. In Luke chapter 12, the brother comes up to Jesus and says, Hey, I want you to force my brother to give me the inheritance. And Jesus responds, I am not a judge, a civil, civic leader at this point. Now, he will be king. He will be the ruler later on when he comes a second time. But at this time in his ministry, he was not a civil magistrate. He had never been elected to the post, never been appointed to the post. He was a religious leader. He was, the, he was presenting himself as the spiritual leader, the king of the nation. And he, at the same time, he wasn't saying, okay, I'm taking over the authority of the Romans. I'm taking over for the Sanhedrin. These fellows knew better. Their law that they upheld said that they were not supposed to be taking uh, taking this woman to anybody, to a mob, to a crowd. They were to be taking her to the civic leaders. They weren't doing it. They weren't doing it. In fact, they want a death sentence carried out. Let's stone her. Let's get rid of her. Right now, let's do it. But they know in six months from now, they're going to say, we have no right to take Jesus' life. Pilate, you have to order the execution. So everything that they're doing is hypocritical. This is not a situation where they're doing things proper and procedurally right. In fact, what this is, this is a lynch mob. This is a lynch mob that is trying not only to to hurt the woman, but they're after Jesus. They're trying to destroy Jesus. They are individuals who are wanting to find some way to accuse Jesus of doing wrong while they are doing wrong in the accusations. They're hypocrites. 
And so Jesus in this passage is not saying it's wrong to judge. He is saying it's wrong to judge hypocritically, which these men were doing. Let me make the, uh, another thought here. Okay? It is so common that religious hypocrites of all ages, back then and even today, religious hypocrites seem to follow this same pattern. Let me, let me point out what I mean. They're highly critical of others while they ignore their own faults. You and I don't want to be there. We don't want to be highly critical of others while we ignore our own faults. By the way, religious leader or religious hypocrites typically get really excited about those types of acts of immorality. You know, the homosexuality, the adultery, the, the immorality that, that is seen publicly. And they can, uh, they can you know, rail and, and they are wrong. And we should rail against it. But we should not be railing against those types of things while we ourselves... We coddle pride, anger, division between us, prejudice, jealousies. You see, religious, religious hypocrites are usually loud in their moral stance while they are very quiet about their own personal offenses against Christ. Um, religious leaders, they often handle offenses in the public, religious hypocrites, excuse me, often handle the offenses in the public arena, not in private. They're loud, they're boisterous in making accusations. When the Bible says that if you have a problem with somebody, go to them individually. Go to them, first of all, in private and deal with it. Religious hypocrites demand that everybody thinks the way they think. They set themselves as a standard. And that's what Jesus has been preaching against. You who are the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you make yourselves to be the standard for others to follow, but you yourselves are not following the Word of God. Something else that stands out to me in this text and is true with religious hypocrisy, usually the people who are in that vein, they're spiritual bullies. They try to intimidate others. They put pressure. That's exactly what they did to Jesus. That brings me to another observation. Number three is this. Jesus was not intimidated by social pressure. Let's set the scene. Let's, let's get it straight. The teachers are trying to trap Jesus. They're wanting to accuse Jesus of not following the word of God, which then would mean that he is a heretic. And so then they could accuse him before all the crowds that are there listening, even the crowd that is gathered right now while he is teaching. And so they want to set a trap that says he's against God's law. And so if he says, don't stone her, he's anti-Deuteronomy 22. If he says, stone her, yeah, let's do it. Let's, let's do it right now. Then they can accuse him of not being friendly and merciful, which has been a message that he's been preaching to a great degree. In fact, he's been called the friend of sinners and publicans. And so they want to discredit him. The point is, either way, they think this is so so uh, clever, the way they've set the trap. They think that they are going to destroy him either way he answers, that he's in the catch-22. And so Jesus, his ministry could be affected by what they're doing. And yet, they come, not only in a, in a clever way, they come with a lot of personal pressure. Think this through. Okay? They are in the middle of a crowd. 
They're, they're, they're doing this, in the, not only in the middle of the crowd, but in the middle of what he's, what he's involved in. He's teaching people. All of a sudden, they burst into the middle of this. They cast this woman down, and they start putting pressure on him. They start challenging him. In fact, the Bible clearly says they continuously asked him, well, what do you say? What do you say? Come on, you've got to give us an answer. Come on. What, should we stone her? Should we let her go free? Come on. He kneels down. He's writing. Come on, you've got to answer. Give us a response gets up, says something, kneels down. They are bullies. They are publicly bullying him and challenging him. In fact, remember they came with a group. And in that group, it says that there are some of the elders as well. In that culture, you ought not to go against the elders. The elders were highly esteemed. And to contradict the elders, to, to say that the elders were wrong, whoa, this would be very difficult. This had a lot of social pressures to it. But Jesus is a totally consistent. No matter what the pressures, no matter what the consequences, he is totally consistent under all of that. And he didn't let popularity determine his response. He goes by principle. And the principle that he goes by, the way he handles it, is just the same thing, the same way that he's been handling things all along. He holds to the same basic truths that he's been preaching from the beginning of his ministry. He says God's word is always true. He supports that. God condemns all sin. He's been teaching that. He's been challenging that. He's been telling people to repent of their sin. But he also says that there is forgiveness for those who repent. That has been his message ever since. Well, in fact... Prior to him, John the Baptist gave this message. Jesus comes and gives this message. And they clearly teach it time and time again where there is repentance, there is forgiveness. And that there is forgiveness for any sin and any sin is worthy of condemnation because God's word is true. And so Jesus does not kowtow to pressure that comes upon him. He's not afraid of the crowds. He's not afraid of the religious leaders. He maintains the principles of God's word. There's another observation. Jesus was not soft on sin. Please do not conclude. Do not let somebody tell you that in this text, Jesus ignores sin. He is so merciful. He is so gracious. He, 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 just, he doesn't you know, challenge in any way, shape, or form. That is not true. Jesus is not soft on sin in this passage. In fact, look at the text real clearly. Jesus makes it clear to the woman that she had done wrong. To the crowd. He makes the comment, she could be stoned. Now, those of you who aren't hypocritical, and that was the leaders, you know, their hypocrisy disqualified them from making the accusations. But she was still guilty. And he says that she could be stoned. Yes, that's, that's true. She has sinned. And he makes the comment to her, go and sin no more. He's not soft on what she did. He's not saying it's in private, it's excusable. He's not giving her some, some reason to just walk away and say, oh, well, I can keep on going my merry way. He tells her, you know, what you have done is worthy of death. What you have done is sin. He calls sin the same way as God the Father. And he tells her, you need to stop this. You don't, you don't continue this way. What the Father called sin, the Son called sin. He is not soft on it. He is not ignoring it. He is not um, excusing it in any way, shape, or form. Jesus Christ sees it and he condemns sin. By the way, not only in that woman's life, but in our lives. 
Jesus doesn't ignore it. Jesus doesn't, doesn't all of a sudden just say, oh, well, you know, that's okay. It's no problem. Not at all. Not at all. That, that we have to remember that Jesus was not only tough with this woman, he was tough with the religious leaders. These religious leaders, he says, you guys have done wrong too. You are these people that everybody looks up to. You are the individuals that, that you, you come across in these positions that you hold. And he says, wait a minute. You that is without sin, let him cast the first stone. You guys are guilty of sin. Now, they wouldn't claim that. They would teach the opposite. They would teach that they're the gatekeepers. They're the ones that work at God's right hand to determine who gets into heaven because they're above the crowd. And Jesus says, no, you're not. You have sin in your life. He is, not, he is not excusing their sin because of their religious standing, their religious attire. He is not excusing their sin because they had zeal to carry out one aspect of the law. He doesn't do that. He condemns what they have done. He condemns what the woman has done. Jesus is not soft on sin. In fact, this is the big question. When Jesus knelt down and rode in the sand, and then he did it twice, and it says, uh, when they heard this, they being convicted in their conscience. Many different Bibles, uh, Bible scholars, they, they try to figure out, what did he write? Did he start writing down names of people that they have offended or collaborated with? Did he write down their sins? None of us knows. We have no idea what he wrote. Was he just doodling? I don't know. You don't know either. We do know this much, that what he said really got hold of some of their hearts, and they realized, wait a minute, we are guilty. We have violated the law by bringing this woman this way. We have not brought the man. We are guilty of our own pride and anger, and Jesus has just brought conviction to their heart because of their guilt. The woman has conviction in her heart as well. Why? Because Jesus is not soft on sin. Jesus challenges, and he does it in your and my life via the Holy Spirit, week in and week out, and thank God he does. Let's make this other observation. Jesus was merciful, okay, when it wasn't even deserved. Now, we, we know where we're going with that. He turns to the woman, he says, woman, where are your accusers? Has no man condemned thee? And she says, no man, they're all gone, they're out of here. No man, Lord. And he said, neither do I condemn thee. Let's keep this in mind. That when Jesus says, I do not condemn you. In other words, I'm forgiving you. This cost Jesus a lot. When I say he's soft on sin, some people will say, yeah, but you know, she wasn't punished. But somebody was. Jesus Christ was punished for her sin. That's why he was able to say, I don't condemn you. I'm going to take your condemnation upon myself. It's a great story of grace. A wonderful story that brings you and me to this most powerful principle. No matter what you've done, Christ offers you and me forgiveness. Name the sin. Name the sin in your own life. Anger, jealousy, pride, lust, thievery, adultery. Name the sin. Embezzlement, destruction of another person's life and reputation. Name it. And Christ offers forgiveness. If we will confess, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And that we are living in an age and a period of time that we are still living in what we call the age of grace. But I remind you that just like food items, they have an expiration date. 
there's going to be an expiration date to this forgiveness. Jesus Christ will come day, someday come back as judge, as civil authority. And he says when he comes back, he will then judge the living and the dead. And when he does that judgment, we want to make sure that we have experienced his forgiveness by calling upon him to be our forgiver, our savior. If you have never done that, you are still living in a time where you can call upon Christ, ask him to forgive you all of your sins, and give you eternal life. If you are a believer who has some secret sin, you have the zeal in public, you portray an, an angst against all those types of public sins and immorality in our nation, but you yourself are hiding and harboring something. You can still be forgiven in this time period. Jesus Christ is offering forgiveness if you genuinely repent of your sin and ask him to forgive you. He will. He is faithful and just. This is a picture of great grace, tremendous grace, wonderful grace. But I don't want to stop there. Let me, let's focus on this for our next few minutes. Jesus is insistent that those who are forgiven should not continue in sin. That's you and me. That's us who have called upon him to be our savior. We are not to continue in sin. He says to her, go and sin no more. Oh my, oh my, what a challenge. Not only can we be forgiven of all sins, but watch this, all sins can be overcome. All those besetting sins, all those things that you struggle with, that I struggle with, the besetting sin that does so easily beset us, we can overcome. He tells this woman taken in adultery, caught in the very act of something that could be very addictive in her life, the sexual temptations and, and pleasures that are being met in an illicit way. He is saying you can overcome this. You not only need to be forgiven of it, but you need to be free of it. And so he challenges her. And by the way, we are challenged the same way by other, uh, other scriptures that say, hey, don't, don't go out and sin. Just because mercy is free doesn't mean that we are free to do whatever we want. In fact, we talked about this just weeks ago. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein. Let not sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey the lust thereof. We read in Peter where he writes, be ye holy as I am holy, quoting from the Old Testament. We read the challenge, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that doth so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race set before us. The scriptures tell us that we who are forgiven are to be living free of these sins. And we can be. We can be free. That brings us to the big question. How can I overcome temptation? How can you overcome that temptation of losing your temper? How can you overcome the temptation of lying? How can you overcome the temptation and the challenge of not respecting your parents, disobeying at times, and having an, uh, a wrong attitude towards others. How can you overcome the temptation of, of being bitter towards somebody who did you wrong? Maybe, maybe they harmed you physically as a child. Maybe they harmed your child. Maybe they, maybe they harmed your income, your business. How do you get over that? How do you overcome the temptation of, of, of just get, you know, doing the things like some get caught up with the smoking, the drinking. Some get caught up with drugs. How do you overcome that? How do you overcome the, the strong addiction of 
pornography. How do you overcome that? Let me give you some Bible principles. Okay? Now, you know, some would say, okay, the way I'm overcoming it, I'm going to go to some monastery high on a mountain where nobody can reach me. You know what? You know right now that people who isolate themselves still battle with temptation. You've experienced it. You have gone through the last few weeks of isolation, and you still battle with attitudes. You still battle with some temptations. Isolation isn't the key. In fact, Jesus even tells this woman, go. He challenges her, keep on going, literally, as you go and keep on going through life. Don't sin anymore. So he's not telling her to become a recluse. He's not saying, okay, the only way you can overcome sin, you must stay right by me the entire time. Now, that's a good place to be. But even his disciples who stood by him, walked with him, they were still tempted. They still fell. So the physical contact wasn't the key. What is the key? What does the Bible tell us? How do we overcome sin and temptation? The Bible gives us a whole bunch of principles. Not in this passage, but let's expand from the Gospels through the Epistles. Let's look at what the Word of God says about overcoming sin in our life. Overcoming temptation. How do we do it? What steps should we take? Let me remind you that some of the best things in the world are hot chocolate chip cookies that come out of the oven. They are wonderful. They are one of the five major food groups. Chocolate chip cookies. Just great. But I remind you that when they start, there's multiple ingredients. When, when, they, when you start with them, you got a whole bunch of things that in and of themselves, they don't taste as good as the chocolate chip cookie. That it takes a little bit of time of mixing this together, of baking it. The same thing is true of these principles I'm going to give you. They need to all work together for you to have success and the joy of overcoming sin and temptation in your life. It, it may take a little bit of time. There's going to be effort on your part. But what are the steps that are re- delivered in Scripture, revealed in Scripture? What are the ingredients to having the joy of not just eating a chocolate chip cookie, but overcoming temptation in your life. Let me give you several real quick. Number one, here's what you need to do. You need to remind yourself, <coughs> tell yourself, reflect upon this truth that victory is possible through Jesus Christ. Not in yourself, not because you come to this church, but it is possible through your Lord Jesus Christ. We, we have many passages, scriptures, talk about him being a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted. He is able to run to the rescue, to run to the assistance, that sucker, them that are tempted. He's there. He's ready. He's willing. He wants to help you. He knows what it's like. He was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain his mercy, his help in time of need, in time of temptation. We, we read in scriptures, the Lord knows how to, to do, how to deliver the godly out of temptations. We read, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We read that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can, you can, overcome any and all of our besetting sins by one, first of all, reminding ourselves it can be done only through Jesus Christ. It's possible. It can't be done by you and you alone. You need the Lord. Number two, number two, here's the thought. Saturate yourself with scriptures. 
absolutely flood yourselves with scriptures. Sanctify them through thy truth, he prayed. Thy word is truth. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Oh, the word of God is so potent. It is so powerful that it can enable you to overcome sin in your life. There's a story told, true story. John Wesley is out preaching, doing itinerant ministries. <coughs> and as he's traveling, all of a sudden a highwayman stops him one day. The highwayman, robber, he says that he wants his money. He wants to, to take his goods. Well, the robber soon found out that Wesley didn't have but just little money. And the bulk of what he had with him was gospel literature. The man in disappointment started walking away. And Wesley called out to him. He said, my friend, someday you're going to want to know this, that all sins can be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Remember, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins. You need to remember that. Years go by. John Wesley is preaching in a town, and a man comes up and says, do you remember me? Wesley says, no, did we meet? He says, we met such and such a place, such and I was the one who robbed you. I was so convicted by those, what you said, by that challenge, that I went and found out somebody who would preach the Bible, teach the Bible to me, and I got converted. And as, as I read the Word and studied the Word, I found out that I needed to change my life. He said, now for the last few years, I've been a successful businessman. I have a family. God is blessed. And I owe it all to you, Mr. Wesley, for what you said to me that day. Mr. Wesley's response was wonderful. He says, you don't owe it to me. You owe it to the Word of God. The Word of God is quick and powerful, and it can change anyone. You and I need the Word of God. We need to take it in so we can overcome sin. We can overcome the deficiencies in our life. You need to read it. Read the Bible. You need to listen to it. Take these opportunities in this shutdown. And some of you are saying, oh, we're getting so bored. Do a little bit more of the Bible study. Listen to some messages. Listen to some of uh, the Word of God. Meditate on it. Think upon it. Don't just read it and run out. Take something with you. Learn the Word of God. Memorize the Word of God. Oh, friend, the, the memory, memorizing the Word of God is such a tool so that like when Jesus was all of a sudden tempted, he had the Word of God in his mind that he could quote it to Satan to fend off Satan. I was reading the true story that's written by a Michael Bellister. He was a fellow who used to go around villages in Poland and give out the Bible. World War II comes along, Nazi invasion. He can't be in Poland anymore. And what he had done is he had visited this one village and at that day that he stopped by, he had one Bible left. He left it with a gentleman and he talked to that man for a while and then went on his way. At the end of the war, he comes back to that very village. And when he comes back to the village and, and inquires about that one gentleman who used to own that one shop, he goes and sees him. And he finds out that that one gentleman with that one Bible, he read it through. He got saved. And during those years of persecution and occupation, that man shared his Bible with the other villagers until 200 individuals in that village have been born again and we're meeting now all together on a regular basis. Billister gets together with them on that Sunday and in their worship time, what they would do is they would sing songs, they would pray together. And Billister stood up and said, well, let me do this before I teach a Bible lesson, which they were unfamiliar with somebody doing that so much. He said, why don't we just, why don't we have you you know, quote some scriptures. You pass the Bible around. Let's, let's hear your favorite verse. The ch man in charge stepped, he says, uh, Mr. Billister, um, maybe I misunderstood you. Do you want us to quote a verse 
or chapters found out that 13 people in that group had memorized all of Matthew, all of Luke, and most of Genesis. Another several people had, had memorized the entire book of Psalms. Can you imagine having that much scripture in your mind? There at a moment's notice to be able to help you to resist temptation, it can be done. It ought to be done. You can do that. You can memorize and use the Bible that way. If you take the time, it'll help you. Sing the Bible. Sing the verses. We read that the psalmist wrote this, I will sing praise unto thy name forever that I may perform my daily vows. The word of God will help you. The word of God will give you victory over temptation. Let me give you another thought. Pray for victory over temptations. You need to pray about it. You need to pray and do what Jesus did for Simon. He prayed that Satan would not have the ongoing victory. Pray, Jesus said, that you enter not into temptation. The Lord's prayer included, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Pray about your besetting difficulties. Pray that God would help you with that temper, with that attitude. Watch out for those vulnerable moments. There was an evangelist that wrote about what happened when he was in Chicago preaching meetings. He said that he got on a bus one day to go down to see a certain bookstore. When he got on bus number 22 of the Chicago transit system, he said, I was sitting there, and the next stop after I'd gotten on, all of a sudden, three people got on, two two young men and a lady. And he says, all of a sudden, the bus driver yelled out, Hold on to your wallets. Watch your purses. Pickpockets on board. Soon as the people knew that, everybody on board started protecting their goods. Those three people got right back off at the next bus stop. You need to be aware of your vulnerable moments, of what's around you. It says in the scriptures, make no provision for the flesh. It says, enter not into the path of the wicked and go not in the way of evil men. Avoid it, pass by it, turn from it, pass away. And then he goes on, talks about, it's better to be in the shining light sitting with the just. We read in the scriptures that you and I need to be ever so careful that we avoid situations. Let me see if I can, can not bore you, but just give you a little life story. In, four, in five chapters. The life story goes this way. Chapter 1. I walk down the street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I am lost. I am helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter 2. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place. Is it really my fault? It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter 3. I walk down the same street. There is still a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it is there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It's my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter 4. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter 5. I walk down another street. That's the way we need to be. Find another, a different street and walk down it. Get away from those vulnerable moments. That goes along with it, this number five. Hang around godly people. Stay away from those who would drag you down. We would, if we could take the time, Proverbs 1, we could look through a whole passage that says, my, friend, my son, if sinners entice thee, consent thou not. And he goes on in that chapter to say, stay away from them. Blessed is the man, the psalmist writes, that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. We read, let us provoke one another to love, to good works, not forsaking these opportunities but exhorting one another we need good companions 
We need good friends. We need individuals to hang around with that, that will encourage us to do what's right. So I ask you this question. Hey, listen, you got a problem with drinking, with drugs? Don't get around the people who are drinking or doing drugs. Got a problem with cussing? Avoid those people who are cussing. You got a problem with lust? Then avoid those, those temptations, the films, the computers, uh, the sites. Put your computer out in the open where you're held accountable. You have a problem with buying too much, going to the store and, and using the credit way too much? Well, then limit your time shopping. Stay clear of those people who want to compete and talk about all these purchases. You got a problem with gossip? It's not going to be a problem if you stay away from people who don't like gossip. You just avoid those folk. You got a problem with, with anger? Avoid violent films. Avoid those, those games that, that tend to be violent. You, you have a problem with getting all upset and anxieties. Stop watching the news that is so negative. If that upsets you, then, then get your news a different way. Get it without all those reports. You got, you got a marriage conflict going? Well, don't listen to the bad advisors to say, oh, you know, get rid of her or get rid of him. Follow godly counsel. Get around people that will encourage you. Got a bad attitude about you towards your parents? Don't hang around those others that have the same type of bad attitude. Get around some people who will challenge you and confront you and will help you to, 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 to overcome that. Number six, fill your life with times of godly activity. Do you remember the Ephesians 4 passage? Put off, put on. Put off those things that, that you didn't learn of Jesus Christ. Put on that which is godly. You have a problem with stealing? Put it off and put, off, put on charitable. Got a problem with anger? He says put off the temper and put on sweet speech. And goes through a whole series of putting off and putting on. Oh man of God, flee those things. Follow after. Fill your, your time with doing righteous, godly, faith, love, patience, meekness. Put off those things by filling in your time with godly activities. Now, so far, let me take note as we wrap up. I want you to notice this observation. So far, everything that we've talked about is all these passages, all these principles from Scripture, they are preventive measures. They are things you do before the temptation comes. And so the Word of God says that you better be ready. You need to be able to resist. Prepare. Now, what do you do when the temptation actually hits you in the face? Here's what you need to do. When tempted, run. Run. Get away from it. Flee the youthful lust. Get away from it. Don't just stand there and, and, and think about it. Move physically. Move spiritually. Move like the, the, the hero of Joseph in old when he was tempted by Potiphar's wife. You run out of the room. You stay away. And number two, or number eight, literally in this is resist. Say no. Just be absolutely convinced. No. No, no, no. Any of you ever go to these timeshare presentations? Oh yeah, they'll give you a night or two at a hotel and they'll just take a few minutes to do a timeshare presentation. It takes up half the day. And when you sit there and they present their timeshare, those salespeople are really good at what they do. They will continue and continue and continue to make an offer, another offer, a better offer. It's amazing how they can all of a sudden say, this is the best deal I can give you at $10,000. And by the time that they sweeten the offer, it's down to $2,000. I, I, I don't know the figures. But it's amazing how much that they can drop those prices. And they are so luring. You just got to say no. You got to say no to those salesmen that just keep on. If you don't want it, 
you've got to really be convinced before you walk in, I'm saying no and stick to it. Otherwise, you're going to end up with this timeshare program that later on you may not want. Listen, friend, when temptation comes, say no to it. What two lessons do we walk away with from, from this right now? You can be forgiven of any and all sins in your life. You, are, you and I are living in the time of grace. We can still be forgiven if we repent. And number two principle, you. You can overcome any and all sins in your life. You can say no. You can be holy as he is holy. You can live like the, like the Lord said, go and sin no more. Thanks for listening. We're going to do another Bible study in just a few moments. Father, help us to be pure. Help us to be holy. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.